Good morning. It's Friday, February 4th. I'm Shemita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. When USA Today reporter Grace Hauck learned that she'd been exposed to COVID-19, she wanted to get tested. So she did what a lot of us do, a quick web search. That led her to a nearby site where things seemed off. Went down there and came upon a shack, a generator-powered shack with two men inside, handing out coronavirus tests to people. The tests were in garbage bags, in crates on the ground. The whole process seemed a little strange to me and just left me with a strange feeling, which is what a lot of people tell me, that they just felt like something wasn't right. That experience prompted her to look into the company. It's called the Center for COVID Control, and its main laboratory is called Doctors Clinical Lab. At its peak, this company said it was collecting around 80,000 tests each day across dozens of states. Hauk found that several attorneys general received complaints about these sites and that state and federal officials are investigating. Some states have moved to close them down. She walked us through some of the allegations. Practices include providing consumers with inaccurate results, fraudulent negative test results. They list a number of problems with the main lab where tests were left out four days in the warm lab, were not properly refrigerated. This testing company, it was founded by a husband and wife team known for flaunting wealth on social media. They showed off Lamborghinis and a $1.36 million mansion. In a TikTok displaying a red Lamborghini, one commenter asked, oil money? The response was, no, COVID money. The lab they used got more than $155 million in federal government money. The company, Center for COVID Control, it didn't respond to requests for comments, and it recently announced it was suspending test collections indefinitely. There are some scams out there, but many testing companies are legit. The best bet is to go with one recommended by your doctor or your local health department. A nasty winter storm is bringing snow and ice to large stretches of the country, and with it, a surge in power demand as people try to keep their homes warm. Hundreds of thousands of homes and businesses have, at times, lost power so far. These outages are taking place from the mid-Atlantic through the Midwest to Texas. As of this morning, Texas has not seen anything close to the widespread blackouts of a year ago, when millions of people were stuck in freezing conditions without heat. The state's electric grid manager said it expects it'll be able to meet higher power demand during this storm. CNBC looks at an interesting angle from the run-up to this storm. It involves cryptocurrency. Crypto miners have gotten a lot of criticism because of all the energy they burn mining bitcoins. CNBC checked in with several of the big Texas crypto miners ahead of the storm. Several said they were voluntarily powering down operations so that they're not taxing the power grid during the extreme cold. A lot of Bitcoin miners have set up shop in Texas over the years, and that's in part because energy is cheap in Texas. And like we said, mining crypto requires a lot of it. The head of the state's grid has said he's pro-Bitcoin, in part because the mining can help keep energy supply and demand in balance. Not everyone is buying this. One energy expert tells CNBC that 
Overall, cryptocurrency miners strain the grid more than they help. As he puts it, it's good to cut energy use at heavy times, but that's kind of like saying smoking one pack a day is better than smoking two packs a day. When the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan last year, Afghans who had helped American troops were in danger. Tens of thousands of people needed help getting out of the country. And some have settled here in the U.S., but many are still waiting. The U.S. encouraged some of them to apply to this special program called humanitarian parole. They were told it might be faster than other immigration channels. Some of those channels are understaffed and underfunded. Time magazine reporter Jasmine Aguilera found... Many of these people are now trapped in a bureaucratic nightmare. There's, in every direction that you look, a backlog, understaffing, and people who are overwhelmed with processing, that it's making it very hard for people who are coming from Afghanistan to really see the light at the end of the tunnel here. More than 40,000 people have applied for humanitarian parole since last July. As of mid-January, only 145 have been conditionally approved and 560 rejected. Aguilera told us about one family that's stuck in this process. Ahmad Naim Akili escaped Afghanistan and is now living in Arizona, but his wife and daughter, they're in Turkey. They're hoping to get to the United States, and they've applied for humanitarian parole twice and paid more than $1,000 in fees. They were rejected, though, without explanation. See, and that's part of the problem. Humanitarian parole is determined on an ad hoc basis, so it's unclear what's required to get approved. And even if you do get it, it doesn't have the same protections as refugee status. Humanitarian parole doesn't come with health care, doesn't come with resettlement services, doesn't immediately come with work authorization. So people come and are a little more stranded. The head of a resettlement agency tells Time, The Biden administration inherited an immigration system that was broken in many ways. Refugee applications sometimes take months or years to process. And the way Aguilera sees it, problems with the humanitarian parole program seem very familiar. It's almost as if the U.S. has reverted back to that prior 1980 era where everything was pretty messy, ad hoc. There was no clear direction that anybody was going in. The Beijing Olympics are officially open. And one of the great joys of the Olympics, especially the Winter Games, is that the rest of us, non-Olympians, get to watch people do incredible, superhuman things from the comfort of our couch. And some of us even catch this secondhand confidence and go so far as to critique the performances, you know, like, (laughs) ooh, that was not the most graceful landing. They're going to lose points for that. I can so see you doing that, Shemita. <laughs> I can stick that landing. <laughs> and this is why we like this funny write-up in the ringer. It's one person's honest, self-deprecating ranking of every Winter Olympics event in order of how terrified he'd be to try it. Michael Baum writes that the Winter Games may be smaller, but they're definitely faster and scarier than the summer events. 
Yeah, there's the less scary things like singles figure skating and curling. But then things get scary quick in the Winter Games. There's extreme speeds. There's huge drops. You can feel the writer's heart rate going up as you climb the list. Oh, and here's one that sounds terrifying. It's called Skeleton. That's when you lie face first on a sled and zoom down a track at about 90 miles an hour. And by the way, that's only ranked eighth in this list. (laughs) Yeah, it gets scarier. You can check out what's at the top of the ringers list and all the stories we mentioned today on the Apple News app. This weekend on In Conversation, I speak with Marin Kogan from Vox. In 1998, when she was in the sixth grade, a student opened fire at her middle school's dance. Before Columbine, there weren't as many resources to help students cope with this traumatic experience. Marin recently spoke with other school shooting survivors from that era. The thing I keep coming back to is we just didn't have the language to discuss what had happened. It was so new, it was so unexpected, and it was so sad, but it was also so strange. We'll be back with the news on Monday. 